Well, good morning. Before we get rolling this morning, I want to take a minute just to recognize someone who's been invaluable in student ministry for the last 15 years, and she's been at Wayside almost 18 years. Uh, as many of y'all know, Barbara Bear, our, admin, our administrative assistant, our doer of amazing ministry feats, is moving on from being on staff here in the next month. And we just want to acknowledge her, celebrate her service and her ministry here at Wayside. Uh, we are thankful for the blessing, that, uh, for God for blessing us with her for all these years. And we want to have a time to celebrate Barbara. And so we're going to be doing that next Sunday, May 23rd, here at 410, over in the high school room following the 11 o'clock service. So following the service next Sunday. We encourage you to take time to write a note of appreciation or maybe even bring a gift to bless Barb. She likes coffee. You, you can bring those next Sunday. I also want to just pause and thank you for allowing these students to serve this morning. It is just an absolute, yes. It is an absolute, I'm grinning from ear to ear, uh, just sitting in the front row there just now, uh, just an absolute blessing uh, for me personally and for all of our leaders to see these students uh, just serving, contributing to the weekly meeting of the body of Christ. And so we are so thankful for that. Um, so because it's Student Ministry Sunday, I started thinking about all the things that make student ministry unique, and that's a lot of things. But one of the things that stands out to me was that we love games in student ministry. Games are great for ice-breaking. Games are great for team-building. They're great for getting, to, getting everybody moving and thinking. And one of my favorite games that we like to play every once in a while is more of a thought game, and it's the challenge where we challenge students to come up with a list of first-world problems. Now, if you don't know what a uh, first world problem is, that's basically anything that we might complain about that could only happen in a world that's so good like the one we live in. So an excellent, for instance, that comes to mind is that my internet is too slow and I can't watch a movie. So this problem only exists where you can sit down in a comfy couch and I am describing my living room. You can look at the giant TV in front of you and you can stream a movie for some computer on the other side of the world. It gives us information that's available, and that only happens in these problems. How about a closet full of clothes and nothing to wear? First hand, again, my house last night. 500 channels on TV, nothing's on. How about being stuck on an airplane, going to an exotic location on your vacation with a crying child, or maybe one that was kicking the back of your chair? My sonic drink is too full of ice. I had to stop and fill up the gas tank in my car. Probably my all-time favorite first world problem that I heard from a student was, my refrigerator is so full, I can't fit all these groceries in it. It's a little more real there, doesn't it? Our students, like the rest of us, we get distracted and we complain about ridiculous things. But I think we are all very good about understanding that these are not real-life problems. I think we know that real problems exist in this life. There's hardship, there's suffering. And so as we continue this morning in 1 Peter 4, we see that kind of idea discussed. Peter talks to his readers about suffering, about persecution, and how we should respond when we face it. We all know the pain of losing a friend or a loved one. We've all struggled with health conditions. Maybe we've lost jobs. Maybe we've faced undue criticism separation, we've struggled at a job and or school, or maybe we've just dealt with a harsh person full of harsh words. But what about dealing with hardship 
because of your faith in Christ. Fortunately, we live in a place where going to prison is not very likely because of your faith. But maybe you've had somebody treat you differently because they know who you are in Christ. And we should all be fully aware that persecution we face in our day, in our location, doesn't come close to what Christians around the world are suffering in terms of persecution every single day. But our response is the same regardless of what it looks like. So let's look at something we're all guaranteed to face in this life. First Peter 4, suffering. How are we supposed to handle it according to God's word? Let's start in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that the revelation of his glory you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is to not be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with, the, with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. So let's break this down a little bite-sized bit so I can understand suffering a little bit more. First off, there is a reason for suffering if you're a believer in Christ. Look back at verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. There's a reason for the believer's suffering. Peter tells his readers, don't be surprised. And the believers in that day weren't. They were dealing with it. It was expected. Peter tells them that they shouldn't surprise them because there is a reason for it. And that reason is faith testing. The term for fiery ordeal is a Greek term for a fire that's used in metal purification or smelting. That's when the gold is taken up from the earth and it's mixed with other elements. And I, and I visualize this because my, my family and I went to Colorado a few years ago and we went into a gold mine. We got to see the little bitty bits of gold all through. And they'll take all that out, the rock, whatever else it happens to be mixed with, and they heat it up. And the other elements, whatever they may be, rise to the top, and they're taken away, and what's left is pure gold. Now, I've got to be honest, I struggled in chemistry class, even when I was paying attention, but I always thought this picture was really cool, okay? The end goal is that the unwanted stuff is taken away, and what's left is the good stuff, in this case, the gold, right? It's to get to the purest four of metal, and that's what these fiery trials and testing is all about. That suffering is, a, is for a purpose, the term testing is exactly the same concept as fiery ordeal. Okay, it's purification through heat. So what God is doing is melting away all the impurities in our life. He's removing everything that isn't based on faith in him. And that's ultimately what these trials do. They make us trust him more. There's a little bit more here that's important. See, the suffering that we deal with on a on day-to-day basis pales in light of what's to come. Look at verse 13. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. Peter tells his readers to rejoice because there is an end coming. It's the view when God is done perfecting the believer, 
and we get to go spend eternity with him. Revelation of his glory, the moment when Jesus returns and he calls us home. This present pain, the suffering, the difficulty is leading us to eternity where all this hardship is over. Jesus is revealed. Eternity with him is in front of us and we can be overjoyed. This is our hope during suffering. It's waiting on the future. It's trusting in him. I'll be honest, I get, I get a glimpse of this when I go to the gym. I've had this happen to me a lot recently. Like, I love working out. Actually, I love lifting weights. I'm not so much a fan of cardio. I hate running. I'm using the word hate here. <laughs> We're good. But I've gotten older, and I realize really the only way to stay in shape is to keep some kind of cardio up, and that's running for me. Hate. But there's a moment, usually when I'm on the treadmill... I'm suffering for my good, and I'll have this image of me sitting in my quiet, I'm in the chair, my eyes closed, relaxing, head back, probably a cup of coffee in my hand. No more sorrow, no more pain. It's a vision in my moment of suffering. While it's for my benefit as I'm on that treadmill, it's good for me. But it gets me through that moment because I can look forward to the end when the pain is over. We all have eternity to look forward to. But first, we have to deal with that refining. God is preparing for us, preparing us for when he'll be finished with us in the future. The struggles we have in this life are so that we can trust him more and more as he carries us through those hard times and he gets us perfected for eternity. And we have to remember, too, as we talk about that this morning, that it is not all suffering. It is not all hardship, but it's still in front of us. And like first world problems, the struggle is about perspective. When we see what we're going through hard times, that God is doing something in our lives, it adjusts our mindset so we can rejoice. He's taking care of us. And it's not just eternity either. God is working on us right now. He's present in our lives right now. He gives us strength for today. He loves us enough that he's doing something with our life. So we shouldn't be surprised by hardship because we all know we need work. He's not done with any of us yet. And we should rejoice because he's doing that work. He is active in our lives today and because he has a big plan for eternity for us. So what kind of suffering? What does the suffering look like? Well, there's a couple kinds of grow us. Okay? The first type of suffering is the general hardship that comes in this life. God allows that in our lives so that we will realize that we don't have any other option but to trust him. But there's another level of suffering. And that level of suffering is when we are called out by the world for not believing the lies, for standing up for the truth of God's word, for standing up for Christ. This is persecution. Persecution for our faith. And if we're truly following Christ we are going to face some hardship because of our faith. That's what was going on for Peter's readers. They were dealing with it firsthand. When he spoke of this, he knew, they knew exactly what he was talking about. We can grow from this persecution. We can share in Christ's suffering of being holy in a broken world. God uses this to change us. I tell you, I love seeing, the life, uh, seeing that work in the lives of students. I love seeing an eighth grader or a freshman who's a complete mess, They're coming out of middle school. They tend to be that way. Okay? They're a complete mess. And to watch it over the next couple of years as God starts to mold them, as God starts to change them. 
And yes, some of that is just simply getting a little older. The further we get from middle school, the more sane we look. I acknowledge that, okay? But the reality is that there are times where it is quite obvious that God has used some hardship in the lives of students to make them who he wants them to be. And I'll tell you, it's even more obvious when they've dealt with some persecution. Maybe somebody's made fun of them at school or with their, among their friends or even among their family. And God uses that to mold them. And it is very obvious when he has. Peter is focused on suffering through persecution. We grow even more when it's persecution like Peter's readers were dealing with at the time. Look at verse 14. It says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. This is persecution. This is dealing with the pain of being directly insulted because you're a follower of Christ. For those readers that Peter, the original readers that Peter was writing to, that meant imprisonment, possibly death. This is not the first type of persecution we are going to face, though that could change. But this might be a loss of a status. Maybe somebody looks at you differently because they know who you belong to. It's because of the name of Jesus. And the rest of the verse says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So here's my question. Are we blessed because the Spirit rests on us? Or are we blessed because of the insult and thus God is with us? Well, it's very much both. First of all, if you're a believer of Christ, if you've put your faith in Him, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. He rests on you. And this right there by itself is a huge blessing. He's part of the package. The Holy Spirit is a seal on our life indicating as to who we belong. The result or an insult would be a recognition that not only we have that promise, but that he is working in our lives in such a way that someone else recognized him in our lives. So therein lies the second part of the blessing. He's working in our lives so much so that you are insulted because you were known by the name of Christ. Someone else work, recognized his work in your life. A number of years ago, a movie that I, I enjoyed, especially because of this line, you probably remember it, and the line was, you're the worst pirate I've ever heard of. And the reply was very quick and very simple. Yeah, but you have heard of me. It's that kind of idea here. You are a follower of Christ. Your reputation is that of Jesus Christ. To me, there's a blessing built in the fact that you are known as a believer, a follower of Jesus. So there's the double blessing. He's in your life to begin with, and he's making himself known through you. And yet, as I've asked some of our high school students over the years, do others know you as a Christian? Are you known at your job, at your school, in your neighborhood, in your organizations, in the places that you frequent? Do they know you as somebody who, go, uh, who believes in Jesus? And I don't just mean somebody who goes to church, although I think that's an excellent start. I mean that you are someone whose life has been completely changed by your relationship with Christ. I think too often we're concerned with our own reputation and we keep Christ to ourselves. Maybe we aren't comfortable, or maybe we're completely comfortable with people not knowing what we believe. But if that life change has truly happened, then we should want others to know because we'll want that for them as well. I get it, I'm not a fan of suffering either, as I've already acknowledged. I don't want to bring that upon myself, but this is what God uses for us to grow. 
there's blessing and perspective. When there's evidence that in our lives that God is at work, we can grow in the struggles, the trials, the persecutions. We can find joy in the fact that God loves us enough to keep working on us. We can find joy in the fact that we are known by our Savior. We can find joy in the fact that His Spirit is within us. He goes beside us. He goes before us. He is within us. We can find joy in the fact that He is perfecting us because He loves us and He wants the best for us. We can find joy in the promised eternity and the fact that God is very good about keeping His promises. In fact, He's got a perfect record. We can find joy in the fact that his name is being known in our lives and that the gospel changes lives. We can keep on rejoicing through those suffering. And remember, this life is not entirely suffering, but we will get to rejoice at the end. Be overjoyed. This this passage takes a slight shift. Look at verse 15. It says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Suffer for the right reason. The classic quote that I feel like I live with frequently is, life is hard. Life is harder when you're stupid. This is what Peter is making clear here. Don't do anything to make your situation worse. Suffer for the right reason. Now I know some of you might be thinking, well wait, I'm not a murderer. Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. You ever dealt with that really strong dislike towards somebody before? I know I have. Not a thief. I've seen folks that won't necessarily take money straight out of your pocket, but they'll take advantage of financially. I've seen people that will steal joy. They'll be one to just be hard to be around. Makes life miserable a little bit. I know I've been there. Not an evildoer. Well, the reality is sin is evil, and we're all guilty. And I can think of many times in my own life where when I dug a little deeper, when I was dealing with some suffering, it was quick and easy for me to see that the reason I was suffering is because something I had been doing wrong. Suffer for the right reasons. Not a troublesome meddler. You ever been involved in gossip or stuck your nose in a situation, someone else's business in a way that made the situation a worse, not better? And I'm not talking about those of you who get involved and try to help. Good, keep it up. I'm talking about those who tear down when you could be building up. I have conversations with students about this frequently. They feel like they're being picked on, they're persecuted by a parent, a coach, a teacher, you get the idea. And I try to dig a little deeper when I have this conversation, and pretty frequently there's more to the story. Typically we find that while they're not totally deserving of the trouble that they might be feeling, A student does bear some responsibility. Maybe he or she didn't do her homework. Maybe they didn't put forth the appropriate effort. Maybe they uh, made the situation worse by running their mouth, talking behind someone's back, being disrespectful. In other words, being difficult, being a troublesome meddler, being annoying. People do this on the internet as as well. There is no place for Christian trolls. That's a person who picks a fight simply to pick a fight. If you're acting like this, you can't call it persecution. Some Christians are living with the consequences of being difficult to be around, and that's not persecution. It's very important for us to do what the rest of 1 Peter calls us who are believers to do, 
And that is to live in harmony as best as we are able with those inside the church and those outside the church in all kinds of different levels. Live in harmony as best we can. The reality is if we do stupid things, if we do immoral things, we are going to suffer. And that's why Peter tells his readers, be above that. Be better than that. Don't be suffering because you choose to sin. We all have choices when life doesn't go smoothly, even when it's a small disruption. When we face hardship, the, the, the hard thing is to endure, is to trust that God has us exactly where he wants us and to fight through it, to trust him through it and do what he's called us to do in that situation. The alternative, the one that a lot of times we struggle to, not to chase, is that we can choose to do things our way. We can handle suffering by sinning. We can blame others. We can hurt or destroy others to get out of our suffering. Some people abandon the faith altogether. They say, I'm not dealing with that anymore. They deny the name of Jesus maybe in little small ways. And each one of these is a sinful act. It's an act driven by a lack of faith in God. People choose their own path instead of God's when they're dealt with suffering, when they're dealing with hardship all the time. And I think of it as a spiritual equivalent to robbing a bank when you face financial difficulties. You're only making the situation worse. Uh, There are ways to trust God through those hard times, and there are ways in which we take it to our own hands and do the wrong thing. If someone's struggling with loneliness, they might seek relief in destructive relationships because they're available to them. They seek relief from pain and escapes like drugs, alcohol, pornography. They seek security by cutting corners, cheating in school, making their resume look good. They lie to cover up whatever it is they've done. All so they can pretend that they've got things under control when the reality is they have no control at all. Each one of these is an opportunity for us to be distracted from actually being able to trust in the one who is in control. There's a contrast between suffering because you sin and deserve it and harm others and, there's the, and, and suffering, as Peter says in verse 16, because he or she is a Christian. Peter says, suffer for the right reason. Peter reminds his readers, say, suffer for the sake of Christ. Suffer for being called a Christian. This is a really interesting choice of words here, Christian. We're used to hearing it. But we have to notice this. This only takes place, this this word is only used three times in Scripture, just three. This was a term that was used outside the church for those at the time, and it was absolutely an insult. The first century church called themselves a lot of things, but Christian was probably not particularly common. So Peter is using the insult that some of those within the church would have heard by others outside the church. They would have heard this insult from their culture. What does the word Christian mean? Well, I think we know what it means. Essentially, it's belonging to Christ, follower of Christ. But it's important here that Peter uses the word because this is an implication that the believers are going to suffer an insult because he actually uses the insult. Don't suffer for being a wrongdoer. Suffer the insult of being called Christ-like or little Christ. And if that happens, you should be proud. Not proud of yourself, but giving glory to God. That's giving attention to God. That's suffering that's worth it. That's suffering for the right reason. He's getting the attention. God uses your life to make himself known to others. So Peter makes this comparison between those who believe and those who don't. Starting in verse 17. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, 
What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? There's a timing for suffering. I think we know the answers to these rhetorical questions, or I think most of us do. There's a suffering for those who are in the household of God, the believer, the follower of Christ, that is happening now as God sanctifies us, as he sets us apart, as he makes us holy, as he prepares us for his purposes. This, in a sense, is a judgment. He's looking at our lives, he's judging us, and he's perfecting us where we're lacking, where we're missing. For those who deny the name of Christ, who have chosen not to believe, who do not obey the gospel, their judgment comes after this life. The contrast here is between the two sufferings. One is God at work in the lives of those who are faithful to him, and that's working on now. The other one is in the final judgment to those who've chosen not to believe. So if God disciplines those who are part of his families as believers, as a perfect father should, how much more is he going to deal with those who reject him outright? God is doing away with sin. He's doing away with that in the life of a believer now. And he will deal with it permanently. He will deal with sin permanently in eternity. So our response should be simply to take this warning very seriously. To put our faith and trust in him. Accept the free gift. And to live accordingly going forward. As we wrap up this passage, we have clear instructions where we need to finish. And I love this because it's real easy to see what we should do. Look at verse 19. Therefore... Those also who have suffered according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. How we endure suffering says everything about our faith. Faithfulness to a creator means doing what is right. It's usually not easy. As we talked about it earlier, how when we suffer, the tendency is to do something other than to trust God. We tend to run from him, do the opposite, handle things ourselves. But obviously the encouragement here, the exhortation, is that we would do the exact opposite, that we know we would do the faithful thing, the God-honoring thing, do the right thing, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance. Suffer according to the will of God. Now I have to admit, I think that's a very heavy phrase. It's a hard reality to consider that when we are suffering, it's for the will of God. That when we suffer, we are exactly where God wants us to be. God has a plan. He's put this in our life. And we should respond by doing the right thing. He has an exact way he wants us to act. We have a student in our ministry, in our student ministry, who's, who's had a struggle. And it's not with her, it's with a friend of hers. Her friend has made some lifestyle choices that the friend, or excuse me, that the student does not agree And the friend knows that the student doesn't approve of these lifestyle choices. And the student knows some other folks who are believers who have very likely told the student to cut the friend out of her life. She knows some other folks outside of the church, those who don't believe, who want this student to celebrate her friend's lifestyle choices even though the student knows these things are wrong. So she's got... She's kind of stuck in the middle. It's waiting on her. And what has she done? She's chosen to do the hard thing. She's chosen to remain faithful to this friend and maintain the godly influence, knowing she's not going to get it from many other places. 
She doesn't want to be negatively influenced, but she wants to continue to have that influence on this friend. She's chosen to love her friend even though she totally disagrees with the choices her friend has made. She wants to continue to be present with the truth of God's word. One side's telling her to condemn what she knows to be true. The other side is telling her to condemn the friend because you're supposed to celebrate the lifestyle. But the right thing, the holy thing, the loving thing, the thing that supports the person and not the poor decisions is the God-honoring thing. And the God-honoring thing and the faithful thing is to stay there and to maintain honest biblical influence in this friendship. And I know God has used the trial in both of their lives and is working in hearts. I think we find plenty of stories of doing the right thing and suffering. Even when it's hard, the faithful do what's right in suffering. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And this applies regardless of the circumstance. That's faith. That's trust in the one who's going to carry you through to the end, who is doing something. And maybe you've never put your faith in Christ. Maybe you've never come to the point in doing what's right the first time. Maybe God's putting some hardship in your life to get your attention so that you will come to the point where you trust him. What Jesus did on the cross, his death and resurrection, and maybe you can do that for the very first time. We'd love to talk to you today. Maybe you've already put your faith in him, but you've not been trusting him by doing what's right. When you're asked directly if you're a Christian, doing what's right means saying, yes, I am, and knowing that your lifestyle has reflected that. When facing financial trials, doing what's right is to seek solutions, not in bank accounts, not in the stock market, not in the economy, but in the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. When you face pressure to lie, to steal, to cheat, to be successful in a business venture or maybe a school project, doing what's right means standing with integrity and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And know that you might be insulted because of the name of Christ and knowing that he is the driving factor behind that decision. Encourage others in their faith. Be a good neighbor. Be a good citizen. Love others well. Do what's right. If there's a struggle in your marriage or maybe a family situation, doing what's right means seeking resolution, not seeking satisfaction elsewhere. Doing what's right means laying down your wants in an effort to correct the problem in a biblical and God-honoring way. And I want to encourage you with this. You are not alone in your suffering. That is why we are all here There's a purpose to the church. One of those major purposes is that we can be here to support each other, to encourage each other, to challenge each other, to love each other, to cry together. You're not alone. There may be somebody sitting not far from you going through the exact same thing you are. We're here for each other. Or maybe somebody has already been through it before, and God has given them some words of wisdom that will help you get through the hardship. Seek shelter. Maybe you're dealing with the hard reality that you've never faced suffering. You've never faced persecution because you aren't living for Christ in any way. You would claim to be a believer, but you aren't living, in a way, a way, living life in a way that God, anyone could recognize God's in your life. Perhaps it's time to take a stand. Perhaps it's time to start living the difference between right and wrong. And I promise you it will be obvious when you make that commitment. Trust Jesus. Understand why they're suffering in this life and recognize that he is the answer. If you're a believer, be like Jesus. Be holy in a broken world. There's going to be suffering, 
but know there's a purpose and rejoice. When you suffer, especially true persecution, trust in the Lord and do right. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you because you are working in our lives. Lord, we praise you because you are preparing us for the future. Lord, we recognize that you are good and we are not. And so we thank you that you have not given up on us. And we thank you for the hard thing to thank you for, and that is suffering. Knowing full well that you have used that in our lives to change us, to make us more like you, to perfect us for the future. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody in here that's struggling with that. Lord, help them to seek shelter. Help them to trust in you as they're dealing with struggles and persecution. Lord, bring people around them, bring them community to support them and to point them in the right direction. Lord, for anyone here that does not know you, has never come to put their faith and trust in Jesus, Lord, I pray that that would change today. Lord, we love you and we thank you for constantly working in our lives and knowing what's best for us, even when it's hard. So Lord, we praise you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray.